if once you get into that hour, hour and a half, you need to start thinking about fueling because that's when you're starting to see the glycogen stores drop in the body, right? So if, if you're going to, if you're going to run for half an hour, even if you're a high level runner, like if, if your race, like if you run a 5k as your race of choice, most of your pre-fueling strategies, right? So your meals before all the way up to the right before the race, you're not going to want to take in those foods during the race. Hello and welcome to the Adaptive Zone podcast, talking all things running and triathlon, from injury through rehabilitation and into performance. My name is Matthew Boyd. I'm a physiotherapist living in Red Deer, Alberta, originally from the UK, and I'll be your host. Hi guys. This week on the show we have Harrison Blizzard. He's a registered dietitian here in Red Deer. He works for a company called RD Nutrition and you can find them online on Instagram and Facebook and YouTube, RD Nutrition Inc. So we're going to be talking all about different types of diet and considerations for endurance athletes who might be interested in um, certain diet claims such as you know paleo or keto and talking about whether the purported benefits of those diets and vegan as well whether they pan out in the real world for recreational endurance athletes like us and Harrison has some really interesting perspectives on this as well as the role of fueling and how it exists on a spectrum with um with with dieting and, and weight loss aspirations for recreational athletes. Uh, it was really, really interesting. I really enjoyed it. So check him out online. And uh, yeah, let's get into it. What's your other job? I work, so I work as a dietitian, but I also work with Alberta Health Services at Public Health. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so it's it's a very different type of job. It's more focused on general health of the population so it's very um they're not basic in a bad way but it's more like general healthy eating for the masses right so it's a lot of like education at this at the youth level um developing resources for Alberta health services to use so it's a lot of that um and that's why i like doing the sports nutrition it's the balance of very Mm -hmm. general nutrition but then very specific so it's it's kind of good for my it's good for my brain that way yeah cool so you're yeah. um so I saw on the website you're a dietitian, but yeah. um I think are you guys nutritionists as well? I'm not exactly sure what the difference is. If you yeah. mind, it's confusing because in dietitian is the most <clears throat> common like professional term used for us to to do that training. Um, in our college is run provincially, which I imagine is the same for you. Yeah, yeah. So depending on the province sometimes nutritionist is a protected term mm-hmm. by the college and sometimes it isn't so like i think uh like alberta is protects the word nutritionist i think quebec nova scotia um but then in other provinces anyone can call themselves a nutritionist oh okay so i think um again i think with Autumn likes to have both of those terms in our signatures at our denutrition for that reason, mm. right? To kind of show that we do have like the qualifications. And um, what is, is it always protected title uh, if you're a dietitian? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. At least in Canada. I mean, I, I know in the U S it's like that. Um, 
most of the developed the developed world that's the term they use um but there's been there's been movement towards trying to use nutritionists more because when people hear dietitian they think of diet right yeah which, yeah which you know we think of it as just what you eat but a lot of people think of diet as like what you do you know like following diet um mm. which has good and bad you know yeah definitely um do you find that in your work that's what's coming up a lot of the time that people are coming in thinking you know i need a diet plan and you're you're perhaps looking at it from a different perspective of your diet are the things you eat and we 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 yes. need to talk about that kind of thing yeah i mean i mean the idea of a diet having a plan to try to follow through isn't really a bad thing at the core but but it's the mindset behind the word diet which people come and then with the a lot of people come in for a diet plan like if you just make me a plan i'll follow it but usually people don't do that right mm. and and the other thing too is we try to help people almost navigate figuring out what they want to eat themselves because if i love eating fish and i you you i give you a diet plan based on what mm. i eat right and you don't like half the stuff i eat you're, you're not going to do it and and the other thing too is we can't make an indefinite meal plan so after a couple weeks right so um most of the study like when you look at like weight loss studies and, and general health studies a lot of them are a lot of them show that people sticking to diets, you know, diets work because there's some sort of restriction put into it, mm -hmm. but people usually go back to the dietary habits they've had to put them in the situation they're in, you know, whether it's health conditions or, or weight. Um, so people usually, if they do that diet for a certain period of time, they usually just go back to what they were doing mm. which put them in that place in the first place. Right. So that's why we do more of like try to counsel, try to get people to make small changes that compound into bigger changes in the future right? mm -hmm. that that's how we train some people don't like that to be honest but we know that me taking someone's money to give them a diet plan you know you're setting up for failure right. so you're not, you don't want to do that right it's not it's not really a professional thing to do um yeah when you're fine tuning though like if you're trying to get people like in the sports nutrition world if you're trying to fine-tune diets and give them amounts of food to eat to meet like certain requirements and stuff that's a little different right that it's kind of a different population um because mm -hmm. they're really into that fine tuning especially with the high level athletes um but for most people we we just need to make more of those larger changes that we can keep going for for longer periods of time right yeah and it's um when i was sort of thinking about what i'd like to talk about today it's difficult because like you said there was sort of two different ways of looking at it one is a fine tuning or an optimizing of your diet for mm -hmm. performance and the other which is far more common which is the reason a lot of people take up running take up triathlon uh, or get into it is because you know they want to be healthier and and truthfully it's often because they want to lose weight right so that's yeah that's almost a it's a it's I, i've seen i've read some of your stuff on your website and i wonder is that does that become a distraction for you the the, the weight uh, is is weight a good proxy for health, or is it are they are they not well linked, and it's it's maybe misleading, you know? Yeah, a lot, a lot. We're starting to find more and more this shift of realizing that weight isn't weight is one factor of your health, just like everything. But people link health to just the weight, and we're trying to get away from that. So, like, there's a lot. Like, I don't know if you've read any of 
autumn stuff, but that kind of health at every size movement mm-hmm. that you see, you see it all over the place now, but it's showing that, you know, weight is a factor, but it's not the only factor. Like when you go to the doctor, they'll always tell you, you're not healthy. You need to lose weight. But time and time again, people, people study it and find like, if you're, if you're overweight or obese, like based on the BMI, but you're active every day, you run all the time, you eat healthy, you're going to be healthier in the long term versus the guy who is technically in a healthy body range based on that BMI, but doesn't eat well and exercise and sleep. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's, that's where it's a little tough now um, with a lot of the athletes we get at RD nutrition because a lot of it is more of a recreate, not recreation in the sense that it doesn't mean anything to them, but they're not in that. They're not like a professional level athlete. Mm-hmm. Right. But a lot of it is they're They start getting into the sport, like running, for example, because they, they enjoy it, makes them feel good. But a lot of times it's spawned on ways to shed weight. Mm-hmm. And then when you're trying to get people who are taking running a little more seriously and they want to try to fuel to, to, to train better, they're always undercutting how much they eat because in the back of their mind, they're always thinking of always being in a calorie deficit to, mm-hmm. to keep the weight off or to lose the weight. Right. But mm-hmm. it affects their performance. Right. Okay. Right. That's what we like. I've, I've noticed that a lot in our athletes, like, especially kind of, um, you know, you're probably familiar too, but you know, some people like as they get older and the kids are out of the home and they're trying to pick up hobbies, they get into a sport like triathlon or running or mm, yeah, definitely. It is, right. And they've had decades and decades of that diet culture, especially like with a, a lot of female athletes too, right? Like decades and decades of being told to cut down calories and mm-hmm. then they're trying to exercise and they can't keep up the training to what they eat. Right. Yeah. That yeah, happens quite a bit. Do you find, you know, with that, that sort of um, subgroup of people, right? So they they got into, let's say, endurance sports, because they want to lose weight. And then, then they they get a taste for it. And they're, now they're an endurance recreational athlete. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. They've been doing it regularly for some time. Um, You've got this sort of, and I feel this myself, right, as I get older, especially because I haven't had trouble with weight fluctuations, but certainly now as I do longer events, I have to fuel them and I have to think about what I eat. And often like today, I was sort of eating dates on my, <laughs> on my bike ride. Right. But, but sometimes it's like gels and sports drinks and Twizzlers. And I'm thinking, is, is this actually okay? You know, cause my en- effort, um, not my effort, my activity levels are quite high. My weight is not changing. It's not going up and down. I, I don't know any other good, easy measures of health, but I'm putting all this, what appears to me to be junk, you know, Twizzlers and Gatorade and do you know what I mean? Like stuff that do, yeah. from at least from the lay perspective looks like junk food. Yeah. Um, if my weight remains steady, am I okay? Or could I potentially be, you know, hiding underlying health problems by high activity levels that are keeping my weight steady. I'm not sure if I'm first. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Cause we like, when I start going through ideas for people, especially like in competition feeding, right. So like usually people are going for those sugars that are easy to eat, like during a run, Mm. during a ride, right. Um, During a soccer match, if they have like halftime like that, that type of thing. 
it's hard for people to grasp using some of those foods and drinks that we don't consider like healthy in the general population. But the reality of it is for an athlete trying to fuel, sometimes they're the best tool we can use. Right. Okay. Right. So, and then I always, I always try to tell people, you know, 95, 90% of your time, you should be eating the, you know, mostly fruit and vegetables, a good source of protein, whether it's plant or animal based, uh, whole grain foods, like kind of that general, like stuff you see on the food guide or stuff you just see yep. everywhere, like the Mediterranean diet, like stuff like that. But when you get into a sport and you're trying to fuel based on a certain time, whether it's right before you start practicing or competing and during, you have to find those foods that are easily easier to absorb. Mm -hmm out the risk of like getting any stomach distress or pain. And usually those right. are the, sim the simpler sugars, whether it's like something like, you know, raisins are just sugar pretty much, right? A little bit of fiber, but all the water's taken out of them. Things like raisins and dates and figs, but then even things like having those sports gels, the sports blocks, um, having thing. I mean, a lot of, a lot of cyclists, use like flat pop right they drink yep. pop right so it's not that's what i said that public health messaging versus the sports messaging public health dietitian would tell you you should really limit those foods because they're not healthy mm -hmm. but when you're looking to fuel the cat like needing the calories the carbohydrate to fuel your body sometimes you need to have those foods that are a lot of calories with not much substance to give you that energy right Yep. Um, you're, you're still, you have high activity levels, right? You're not sedentary. You're, if you're eating those other foods, most of the time, the healthier, the healthier foods, having like Twizzlers and jelly beans and stuff for during races and competitions, isn't really going to harm you, okay. you know, at all. Really? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And it's actually yeah, uh, quite reassuring. And I think it's just as you were describing the difference, it's almost like it's set up that way because the reason you go for those foods is that they're easy to digest and they give you a high amount of calories and a very small amount of space so it doesn't yeah. you know it's not like eating a, a plate of potatoes while you're trying to run right yeah <laughs> um, exactly so it's, it's easy to get the sugar into your blood and then use it yeah and then that's the exact reason that we call them junk food the rest of the time because they don't fill you up and they, they exactly. give you millions of calories without, you know, uh, any, any significant nutrient yeah. content, but that's actually what you want when you're in a, in a workout or a race, yes. this is the exact opposite of you want, like you said, 95% of the time. Yeah, exactly. So that's why we like, we use the term energy dense and nutrient dense, right? So we want to yeah. be eating nutrient dense foods most of the time, right? Vegetables and fruit have a lot of nutrients. But they're not super high in the calories, right? Which it's we if we eat too much. Um, but then the energy dense foods, you know, pop, candies, um, even like white bread, like that stuff, it doesn't give us a lot of nutrition, but it's really just giving you calories or energy. Um, mm -hmm. But in an athlete, in certain times, that's what you want. And that's what you need. Right? Okay, so it's, um, it's like a spectrum. So it is 95% of the time daily life, you want mm -hmm. nutrient dense food, like you described. And the the five percent of the time where you're actually working out training or racing you want energy dense food and yeah. you don't want that the rest of the time is that would that be a fair summary yeah, yeah. Okay. so when you're looking at like endurance athletes really your main thing is it's that leading up to a race or competition 
and then the during the competition that's when you're really using those things um there's other there's other examples you know if someone has a very high work rate for their training like athletes who are like that you know they two three times a day training sometimes they just need the calories and there's no other way to do it because if you needed to eat four or five thousand calories a day you're not going to be able to eat that much broccoli to meet 5,000 calories. So mm-hmm. usually they have to supplement with things that are higher in calories, right? They mm-hmm. add fat to their diet. They add some of those consi- those higher sugar foods because it gets the calories up without them like being so full yep. that they can't train, right? But yes, it's mostly that pre- pre-competition, pre-training, enduring is where you want those kind of more of those simpler sugars or refined sugars, however people kind of label them um, because you don't have to, your body's not wasting time trying to digest, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a big, if you have a big Mac, if you have a, a really fatty meal, like 20 minutes before you run, you, usually people feel like garbage, not everybody, but a lot of people feel like it's almost like slows them down or they don't yep. feel good or they have to go to the bathroom, <clears throat> right? Um, same with those high fiber foods, right? So things like, um, you know, if you, you, if you eat like a whole wheat bread, it has more fiber, but the fiber slows down the absorption of the, the glucose, mm. the sugars, right? That's great in your day-to-day life, but when you're running, it's not the best thing because you're not mm. your body can't pull the glucose out quicker to mm-hmm. use as fuel, right? Yeah, yeah that's uh, something I started to think about because I was using like dates and it was uh, I was using them for very long training runs, marathon training, and doing marathons as well. But then I start the more sort of thought about it was i was doing that because i'd been conditioned to think you know sweets are unhealthy which i think is a fair <laughs> thing to think yeah um so gels are unhealthy so sports drinks are unhealthy and dates are more healthy because there's fiber but then i wasn't sort of taking that next step and thinking well do i really want fiber during a run or during right. a race and, and i think yeah. from what you're saying is probably not no, and I mean with the dried fruits, I mean there it depends how much of them you're eating in in your per hour. If you're trying to meet those goals of how many grams per hour you're eating, um, fruit usually is not a huge concern, right? It that that comes down to a personal. Some people are very they have a very finicky stomach, mm, right? Yeah. Some that people made- don't, <laughs> right? Right. So, the, so the part of it is that in and that's where it goes back to counseling is there's individual behavior and individual reactions to foods that we need to think about right um Mm -hmm. some people have very limited foods they'll eat while they exercise and other people it's the opposite they get so tired of the same foods they want more variety so they have different options for training so so there's always that that extra component we need right but the fiber and fruit is a it is in there but it's not as high as some other foods we would see right like the starchy like a vegetable per se would have a lot more okay you know what I mean? Yeah. So, exactly. so things like dates and, and dried cranberries and uh, raisins, like they're pretty, they're a pretty safe thing as long as you've tested them and you mm. feel that they are good for you in that in that run or that race, right? And I suppose the same would apply to say bananas, which they sometimes hand out at the aid stations on longer races. Yeah. 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 So when you're so when you're in a race, I mean, a lot of times if they have some. A variety of those foods. Then it's up to you to pick the ones that you've trained and trialed and know that mm-hmm. they're the best ones for you, right? Because um, you know what it's like. You go to a race, they give you some weird product that you've never seen before, but it's the sponsor. And then you think, if you're not 
prepping for the race. You say, I'll just eat that because that's what's available. And then Mm. you realize it makes you feel sick, right? Yep. Done that loads of times. (laughs) (laughs) But you're like, oh, but see what you do is you take those products. If it's free, you take them home with you and then trial them. So then you know if they work or not, right? Um, yeah, but it's it's like it's a it's free. It, it doesn't matter that I'm in the middle of a race. It's like it's they're giving out free food. I'm just gonna just, I'm just gonna take it. <laughs> and that, that's and like when you said about sports drinks, it's the exact same thing, right? A sports drink is an aid for a certain specific scenario when you need that glucose and electrolytes during exercise. They've marketed into some, a drink that you drink all the time. It's almost like the equivalent of pop in that sense. Like, you know, mm. I'll, I'll go to a school and talk to kids and they, they slug Gatorade like it's just like right. a bad, healthier juice. Right. But it's still just it's still just a lot of sugar with nothing else that they really don't need when they're just sitting in class all day. Right. That's the problem is these foods have become such mainstream that we eat too much of them. So generally they are unhealthy for us if you mm. think of it that way. But for, for an athlete in certain scenarios and you're, and you're figuring out how much you need and you're eating it at the right time, it's, it's a tool, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really nice way of thinking actually. And it's sort of D um, I don't know what the word is. It's, it stops it from being like an evil no go food. And like you say, it makes yeah. it a tool and um, that's to be applied in the right circumstances and yeah. not the wrong circumstances. So if I'm eating, you know, if I'm sitting eating Twizzlers watching YouTube, you know, that, that's not really using the tool. Well, exactly. And that's, that's kind of what, and that's why like, you know, sometimes people think we are kind of weird when we say things like there's no bad foods, but that's kind mm. of what we're getting at. There's mm. the foods you should be eating most of the time. But, but if you have, you know, even things like even just the mental side of it, but like if you're going to have Christmas dinner and you like to have a pie with your Christmas dinner, having the pie isn't a bad thing to eat. It's the, mm-hmm. but it's the fact that as society, we outweigh, we eat too much of those. Then we eat those foods we should be eating as the foundation of our diet. Right. Mm-hmm. That, that's where the, that's where the shift has been. And people like to make, call them sin foods and this and that. But what we find is that you usually leads to overeating. Because like you said, if when your parents tell you not to do something, usually that's what you do. It's the same with food, uh. right? When, when, someone, when someone gives themselves a restriction, usually their mind is like consumed with that food. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, don't right. think about polar bears and you just immediately think about polar bears. It's, like, it's all right. you can think about. Right. Exactly. And if, if, you, if your favorite thing to eat is, is licorice mm. and you tell yourself you can never have licorice, you're setting yourself up for failure because mm-hmm. you're going to eat it, right? You like it, you crave it, but, but it's that, how do you put that into your healthier lifestyle? And Eating how, mostly those foods and then having those on the side, right? How do you do that? You know, with your clients. So that goes back into that counseling and trying to get them to work towards those small, sustainable goals that they can maintain. So, you know, if you, if, if I talk to you and you drink four liters of pop a day, right? If I can get you down to three liters of pop a day sustainably, that's a step in the right direction. But the next guy I have might drink two liters a day. So for him, three liters is more, but you know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's case by case. So you're trying to get them to acknowledge where they can make those changes, understand what they think is sustainable and try to work towards ways to slowly get them to be to, to bring it back or add something in or change the way they do it. That, and that's the hardest part, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you're, 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 
motivationally interviewing or coaxing them or trying to make them understand that you can still acknowledge those foods, have those foods, but just maybe think about when you're doing it or how much you're doing it. Right. It's, yeah. It's, I mean, it's it, a tough thing. it overlaps a lot with a lot of work I do with, you know, clients is, um, you, it stops being very technical, like, you know, that what, what type of what you studied in university and starts a lot more being and yeah. um, behavior change and how to assist people in making the behavior changes that they already know they want. So with me, it's often activity levels, exercise, things like yeah. that. You know, someone comes in with knee arthritis and say they're not a runner, they, they've got knee arthritis and they want to get active because they know it'll be good for them. How do we, how do we do that? That's human behavior change. That's very, that's yes. very different to what is the pathophysiology of osteoarthritis, which is what we learn, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. And that's, I think they kind of do a disservice sometimes. Like we learn a bit of it in school, but we probably should have put more emphasis on it because mm. whether you do it like for our world, it's the same thing. Most of us work in a clinical setting like a hospital, right? So whether it's someone it's admitted in a hospital or someone like me who does, um, you know, I do the sports, which is a subpopulation, but even with like the general population, like in pub public health, I'm doing it to groups, but you're still trying to do the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to get people to take it. Like if you change your direction by one degree over time, it make it's a big change, right? I, I keep thinking though, when, cause like I saw, see a lot of people just getting into running, just getting into yeah. triathlon and often weight loss is a big motivating factor. I mean, that is just the, the way it is, you know what I mean? Regardless of why, mm -hmm. um, how then are they to approach um, the foods they eat? When, so say, for example, I often, you know, see people going to the run clubs and stuff and, and the run club, you know, max it's one hour and yeah. they've got sports drinks and they're, they're drinking quite a bit of them. And I, I don't say anything, obviously, but I, I wonder, is that, is that, aligned with what they want to do is that fueling their workout the way you described or is that actually hampering their efforts to lose weight which is what they want to do yeah. or is, he, is that even a healthy goal to you know should they be thinking about using running to lose weight or is that just are they on the, the sort of path to failure there again yeah, i'm not sure I if think, i've worded that question very well yeah, I think like <laughs> if, if, if that's the motivator to get them active like when i look at someone picking up an activity whether it's a sport or just general activity if it's some if it's if it's something that they can find that gets them kind of sucked into doing it and then they enjoy it the initial motivator may have been the weight loss right but hopefully and and like part of this is education and learning or hopefully just in the in the communities which i don't know it always happens but it's I think hopefully they, people realize that there's more to it than just the weight loss. They do mm -hmm. feel good. They feel like they have, they lost some of that stress from their day, their work day. Right. That's what we hope. We hope that people realize like a more holistic approach to health, that it's not just, yes. And you know what, they probably will shed some pounds, right? If, if, if they're, if they've increased their activity and haven't changed anything else, there's a good chance they would at least maintain or, like you said, more building the muscle and maybe they lose some of the fat. Cause usually when people say weight loss, they mean fat loss. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that I think that 
it's okay to have some of those thoughts. It's if it gets in, if it's, if it gets sucked into being like a negative thing, right. Or if it's a, if it's a discouraging thing, if the weight loss doesn't happen, because what the, what are they going to do? They're going to get discouraged and stop. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With some of their fueling at some of those record at that recreational level. Like when we talk about fueling for training, um, we're talking about quite higher level training needs. Um, you know, going for a, a run as a casual or social runner, usually you're not needing to do those fueling strategies. If you're, you're fueling enough in your day-to-day -day eating that you don't need to fuel during, does that make sense? It does. And I think that's, that's exactly the question I was trying to ask is where along that spectrum does the need for fueling arise? How much exercise per week or, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. It's usually, we, we, we usually base it on time of the exercise bout. So like if once you get into that hour, hour and a half, you need to start thinking about fueling because that's when you're starting to see the glycogen stores drop in the body. Right. So if, if you're going to, if you're going to run for half an hour, even if you're a high level runner, like if, if your race, like if you run a 5k as your race of choice, most of your pre-fueling strategies, right? So your meals before all the way up to the break right before the race, you're not going to want to take in those foods during the race, right? We're looking more at the long endurance type of that, the training. So anything over the hour, hour and a half, you're going to start needing that to give you that little bit of boost, right? Mm. To, kind of try to, pro to prolong the glycogen depletion. Would that be a fair rule of thumb then? Um, you know, if you're staying under an hour, you don't need to fuel generally, even for race performance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There's actually, um, there's a doc, there's a guy that was our, he was one of our instructors when I did my sports diploma. He's, um, he mostly does cycling. Like he's in Netherlands, but he does mostly like with the cycling teams over there. And he has a good visual on his Instagram that shows kind of that scale, right? That once you get, um, past that an hour, hour and a half, two and a half hours, how you can, how you can think about how much you're looking for per hour. Mm -hmm. um, there's been some science showing that under an hour, you can get a, a stimulation mentally from having sugar in your mouth. So a lot of people mm. use it as like almost like a mouthwash, mm -hmm. like having a squirt of Gatorade with that sugar. It doesn't give you anything as far as energy in the body with the glycogen or the glucose. It's more of the, the receptors on the tongue, how it reacts to glucose gives you that mental ability to push yourself. I don't know if that makes sense. It's kind of interesting, right? So a lot of times yeah. you'll see people just do it more like the, they might chew gum or they might just suck on a candy because it's just that little bit of sugar in their mouth. It's not that they're ingesting it. It's just what's in the mouth, right? Um, but as far as actually absorbing the glucose, you're looking at kind of the, beyond that hour of training. Mm. So like slugging back a Gatorade after you ran 40 minutes, um, not really any benefit to it, right? It just... Mm -hmm just another drink yeah. um okay yeah. so that's kind of the way that's the way we try to tell now the, the only exception to that rule is if you have someone who's trying to find out foods that they can eat easy and they're not running more than an hour every day there you need to give them the chance to try those foods so it's more of a trial and error like remember i told you about how some people can some people really enjoy dates some people don't some people sometimes they just have to go through that more just to trial the flavor and the, the mm -hmm. ability to eat it while they're biking or running that's different but as far as like science wise you don't really need it past that hour okay cool. sorry, no, that, that is helpful past that hour. yeah and that's yeah it's interesting because 
I'd sort of followed that. That I have a lot of trouble fueling. Just I have one of those people with a sensitive gut, so I would just like I was like even two plus hours. It's like if I can get through this without eating anything, I'll just do it, you know. Yeah. And then yeah. what I found though is that I hadn't uh, sort of trained my gut. Do you know what I mean? When it came to races and longer workouts that went over an hour and a half. I really struggled to eat anything. Gels made me feel sick. Sports drinks made me feel sick. Um, I could found I could stomach dates a little bit, but not many. Not not to get that amount that was yeah. required from what I'd read. And I think there is, like you said, there's a certain amount of rehearsal that you have to do to, yeah, you know, because a lot of your training, say you're doing a half marathon, right? It might take you like two hours, but most of your training will be an hour or less, the majority yeah. of your runs. So then when are you going to rehearse and teach your body yes. how to learn what you can tolerate and train your gut to tolerate it while you're jiggling up and down you know? yeah exactly right so yeah because you're trying to you're trying to look at flavors types of um food and then you're also trying to get the amounts down right so you like you know you have that range that they tell you about in like scientifically what what can your gut digest but if you can eat zero grams and you start feeling sick, we might work on five, 10 grams. So it's mm -hmm. not even close to like what's considered like the gold standard, but there's no point of somebody who can't stomach anything oh, trying right. to get 60 grams an hour. You're just going to, you're going to puke or you're going to, you know, have to go into the woods Yeah, because and you just can't do it. Right. And then you, you, you have to do it in those shorter runs, right? Because that's part of yes, your training. You do, it's, you, you you're training to do, to do the, it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing when you're kind of on the cusp of when your goal run or your competition run is on the cusp of that, you do have to do more of that with the shorter runs just to get used to it. And there's the practical side of it too, right? Like you always hear with bikers, you know, some things are hard to fumble with when you're on a bike. Yeah. yeah right. And so. so you have to think of the practical side of it too. Like I had someone who does triathlons, but they do the, the bike component is mountain biking. So it's not, it's not someone on a flat road that can kind of balance the bike as they go and eat, you know, you have to have your hands on the handlebars at all times. It's a very different type of biking, right? Yeah. And more, and the, the jiggling is like crazy. If you're mountain biking, you know, and the, what happens when you do those vents, like the exterior and stuff is you, it's almost like high intensity interval training. You know, it's not this steady state kind of road bike triathlon event. It's, Sometimes you're going up, like you have to get up a hill and you have to go as hard as you can. And if you've just yeah. had a gel, you're probably going to puke that gel, <laughs> you know, so yeah, very exactly. tricky. Yeah. The, um, the, so something I, I came across, you know, learning, you know, listening to podcasts and such about nutrition is this sort of concept of training yourself to to run on fat, you know, so to, to burn yeah. fat as a fuel by reducing the amount of carbohydrate in your diet throughout the week. So this is often called like low carb, yeah. high fat. Or, yeah. um, I mean, is there, is there any merit to that as a, as a strategy? Um, is it, is it a good idea for people like myself who are, you know, recreational aspiring endurance athletes yeah. to, to, try and reach this uh low carb zone which i think is is very very low from what i can tell it is yeah it's kind of in the 20 25 i think of your carbs and the, the 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 mindset of this 
really started from the reality that we we're really limited on what we can store as, as carbohydrate, right? So we have what we can eat, what's stored in our liver and what's stored in our muscles as glycogen, right? That's very clearly defined a limit that we, when people say they hit that wall, that's what happens. Their glycogen's tapped, they have no type of source and the body just stops or really slows down. Um, even a lean athlete, has a lot of fat stores in their body, right? Our bodies have been made over the history of humans to store fat because it's a great energy source, right? We can put a lot of it on our body. Um, it would last for a long time. Most people die of, of dehydration before they die of starvation, right? Like in, you mm -hmm. know, if you're like stuck in the desert. So the, so then the kind of the mindset to that was, well, gee, if we have all this fat on our body, that never runs out, we should be adapting our body to burn the fat more than the carbohydrate, right? And then that, and that really took off in the, in the endurance training, because those are the athletes who run out of carbohydrate, right? Yeah, um, hockey, hockey players and, and basketball players, they don't usually, if they are competing, it's intermittent, they have breaks, right? They're never usually running out of that glucose or of glycogen. Um, so, so this idea of, well, let's just start training our body to adapt, to metabolize or burn the fat better than we usually are. So, so that's been shown, you know, there's been studies that shown that if you go into a low carb, high fat diet, your body is better at metabolizing fat. Your body adapts to use that, the energy that's available to it. When you start talking about a sport or a competition, what's the purpose of the game or the competition? It's to win or to to beat your personal time, whatever it is for you, right? Um, I'm just gonna stop. Yeah. Said stop the washer. Um, <laughs> with with the um, so when you're so when you're doing that, right? You're trying to. Um, train your body to do that but then in a game or, con or so race usually for endurance athletes it's I'm trying to do it in the fastest possible right is mostly what we do sometimes they have different types of uh, races but usually it's you have a certain distance and you have to do it as fast as possible right um, what when they started studying this more and more what they found was if you're, if you train your body to metabolize that fat better, usually that comes at the, um, circumstance of not being able to use the glucose as well in the body. Uh -huh. So what, what's been, so when they do studies, they usually do studies based on like your VO two max, right? So, um, with the VO two max, like essentially how hard you're pushing yourself. So, mm -hmm. When they study that lower VO2 max, so kind of that slow, steady pace that you might see, you know, kind of like on a slow run day type of thing, mm -hmm. um, you can you can train your body to use the fat really well in those lower energy, lower um, lower exertion type of runs. But what they started to find is once someone had to kick it into high gear, or you know, like you said, if you have to hit a hill, or you have to outrace the guy that's in front of you that you're chasing that's when your body needs to use that carbohydrate because it's, it's that faster type of exertion. People who've trained their body to, to metabolize fat better lose the ability to use the carbohydrate as efficiently. And they kind of lose that ability to push themselves over that, that hmm. exertion. Does that make sense? It does. What I'm wondering then, is it a sort of, a sort of a, 
I don't know what you call it where you it's like a, a, a net zero or a zero sum game. That's the word I'm looking for. So you can either be very well fat adapted or you can be very well carbohydrate adapted. Yeah. Or is it more of a I don't know if the, the research is at this level yet, but is it like, you know, you can train yourself to be very well carbohydrate adapted by doing, let's say, 50% of your runs fueled, and um, you can train yourself to be uh, very well fat adapted and use fat as a fuel source by doing, say, 50% of your runs, you know, starved for want of, want of yeah. a better word. Yeah. Or is it that, you know, you have to give one to, to do you know what I mean? Yeah. You can have one or the other, but you can't have both. Yeah, that that's kind of where we're leaning towards now, right, is that trying to get that happy medium. So what it boils down to is when we talk about low carb diets or eating plans around training, we try to make it specific to the training or the day or this or your cycle. Right. So. So if you, so those if you're going to implement those low carbohydrate type of feeding plans, you might do it on those training days. You're doing like your long, slow run. Right. But mm -hmm. if you're, if you're doing like interval running where you're trying mm -hmm. to meet the pace and do that, you're not going to put yourself in that low carb because you're, you're training your body to be able to accelerate those faster paces. You don't want to put it into a state where it has no carbohydrate to actually push you to that. Right. Cause you wouldn't be able to reach the same intensity output. And right ask your body right. to make the adaptations right so what's the point of training, to that stimulus? Right? yeah because you're right. training to make that adaptation to get better more efficient whatever so what what we usually recommend is you know if you're in if people are interested in those low carb high fat um types of plans is doing them in different ways and in different types of training times right so mm -hmm. um we can see adapt we can see people adapt to that fat metabolizing pretty quick actually you know like you know week after week if they're implementing it you you can start to see benefits there um but you don't want to do 100% that if your goal is to that type of running right mm -hmm. um now you know you know like the races where people are running over certain like days and stuff like very mm -hmm. there's more evidence for that type of training to do the because you are running very long very sustained style of run right mm -hmm. um like even at a marathon level like that sounds long to the average person but when we see things that are 100 150 mile runs a marathon isn't really that long right mm -hmm. so a lot of those a lot of those like long-term low-carb diets you're seeing that with the most the most extreme endurance mm -hmm. type of training right which is a very small population it's like that um, multi-hour event um yeah it's, it's sort of ultra marathon or ultra. Yeah. Would an Ironman, a full Ironman fit into that? You know, that, I mean, most people who are average will take over 10 hours to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That you're, that's getting to be a pretty long run, right? So, so mm. with those longer runs, that's where the fat metabolizing might be an advantage, more of an advantage mm. than like the marathons length runner. Yeah. Um, right. And also if you're kind of, if you're at the level where your goal is like to complete it and you're going to go at like a very slow and steady pay, like the slow and steady wins the race type of thing. Um, you might not have to worry about it as much, but if you're that person who's trying to win um, first, second place, and you know, you have that competition that there's like that slim chance, you know, you not being able to pass them on the Hill could be the make or break for you. Right. So mm, it depends on the okay. situation. Yeah. yeah, but we usually recommend implementing it into your training, just different periods. 
And a lot of people do that naturally, right? So if you're an early morning runner, you probably are running in a fasted state if you ate at supper time or the night before, and then you had eight, nine hours before you went for your run and didn't eat mm-hmm. breakfast, right? So a lot of people naturally do have certain states of their their training where they are in a fasted state. Um, do you know what I That's, mean? I do. From from a practical standpoint, yeah. sorry to make it all about me, but it's just how I see no, the world. No, that's fine. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, if you, so something I would try and do would be, and I, I sort of did this today and then I sort of half didn't do it. So this is a probably a good way to, to ask for some clarity. So today I, I got up, had some coffee and I took my dog, Socks, who's asleep on the floor beside me <laughs> for a run. Uh, he can only do about 5k because he has a bit of a bad hip. So I did a 5k run with him, took about half an hour. Then I got on my bike and I did an hour and a half because I had a sort of two hour, it was supposed to be a cross country ski today, but it's too icy. Right. So this two hour workout and I thought, well, I'll do the first half of it without any food. And then at about halfway, I had some dates to sort of get me through. Would it, would it be better to say, you know, because a lot of athletes, uh, recreational athletes, will do a longer workout at the weekend, be it a bike or a brick or a run. They'll have that hour and a half plus workout usually at the weekend. Would it be beneficial to do that, say that every week without any fuel or every second week without any fuel or only limited fuel or limited fuel sort of towards the end of the, the longer workout? Uh, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's like, there wouldn't be a clear definitive way to approach it because partly it's going to be the goals of the person. If the goal, if the person is interested in trialing some of those low, those fasted type of workouts, then it would be worth implementing and you could do it kind of like you suggested the alternating thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, the thing, the thing we wor- would worry about on like on my side of it is it goes back to like you said about the training, right? If you're training for a race in two months and you have, well, say, say two, so you have eight weekends and you're trying to increase your mileage. Do we want you to, to potentially sacrifice the long run mm-hmm. to trial this type of, it's a kind of like an advanced technique, right? Okay. Okay. If you're a seasoned athlete, you know, if, you know, if you know people who have, you know, they'll have their race season and they'll have their off season, but they're mm-hmm. still keeping their kilometers pretty high. Mm-hmm. Then you can start to trial and experiment. And then when right. you start to know what you like or what you find beneficial, then we implement it into more of the race, get like the racing season or the leading up to the racing season. Right. And that's where the, um, like for anyone who has training plans, that's where that those cycles are really important. Right. Yep. what types of things are we trying to do in the off season versus the preseason versus in season mm. like that right so there there's no real right or wrong or or clear answer to that it's it's going back to what's the person's purpose or what are they really trying to achieve um you know going into those i know the fasted state or the the low carb is quite popular um but it might not be like a beginner a beginner level mm-hmm. training plan right mm-hmm. um then it would be then for someone who first wanted to introduce it, you might start to introduce it when there's no, if you've always ran in a fed state, like high, say high carb, like that's just what you did. We wouldn't want you trialing it right before a race. 
we would do mm-hmm. it maybe in an off season or, or right after your races are done. You, once you do a little bit of a taper, you get back down to more of a steady mileage or whatever. Mm-hmm. We might start to play with that, right? And see how you feel. And then that goes back to the coaching, you know, keeping a journal. How did you feel after you did the fasted run versus not, right? Mm. Does that kind of answer your question? I kind it of, does. I, I think what you're saying is, yeah. I, th- I think it, what you're saying is it's, it is beneficial to do those things. You got to be careful when you do it. It's more of an advanced skill. So it's not something if you if you're building up to do say your first half marathon, it's probably not the most important thing. It's probably it's more probably not important. worth the risk of doing it wrong, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, but if it's a, I don't know, if you if you're quite well trained at the distance that you're currently doing and you're wanting to try and improve your time, it might be yeah. something worth doing, say, in the middle of a global pandemic when there's no races. And, there's exactly. not... <laughs> yeah. and that's so... what we were, we were saying, you know, we've, we've had a bit, we've had a reduction in people coming for counseling um, because there's no races. Right. Mm. But, but with nutrition, sometimes this is where you're going to get the most right. information because you're not worried about meeting a deadline of a race you can play with foods you can play with strategies right you can play with amounts of carbohydrate you try to eat an hour like you have a lot more room to play with that and trial um so it's actually a good time to do a lot of these strategies to learn mm-hmm. um, so like you said like in in, in this specific example of a, of a pandemic if there's no deadline for any of this give the give some of them a shot right and, and try to get that support to help you and and that's what we always say keeping those log i mean people don't like journaling and log books but that's what is good about those is you can find the trends and how you react or feel after you do those some of those nutritional adaptations yeah it's that reflective kind of practice that yeah. is often what is needed um yeah yeah, yeah. the so, I mean, what we, what we sort of zeroed in on there was, um, what did you call it? Fed or, 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 um, non-fed states, you know, yeah, fed, faster, fed, yeah, faster, faster or faster, fed yeah. state of, for your workouts, but that that's a little different from say, let's say, um, like a, what do they call it? A ketogenic, um, yeah. diet, which is a, yeah, it's more like a sustained diet that you're eating all right. the time. Right. And, and, and so and, what, what is that and how does that fit in? So that goes back to more of like the, so when we talk, so keto, so, um, you know, you hear like the, the paleo diet, the keto diet, the low carb, high fat diet, the, the main, the main thing you people are trying to achieve that is usually low carbs, right? So there's different strategies, right? Paleo oh, is more okay. the mindset of paleo is more the mindset of I'm going to eat low carbs by eating certain foods that mm-hmm. meet, that fit that paleo diet box, right? Or whatever. Um, a keto diet is a low carb, but trying to meet a certain amount of carbs where you put yourself in a ketogenic state, but it's still low carb, right? So there's, so it, it's, they're all different, but they all kind of are trying to achieve the same thing. So then it goes back to, it's the, it's a low term, low carb diet to try mm-hmm. to metabolize fat better. And what is running or racing? What is a ketogenic state? And why would you enter that state when you are very low carbs in your diet? Well, there, there's a lot of so with keto, ketogen, yeah, ketogenic diets, there's a lot of different reasons why people go for those. Um, so when we talk about athletes, it's kind of more of the 
metabolizing, right? Like you can burn the fat better because you're using fat as your main source of food. Okay. Um, but, but there's also like, there's a lot of research in ketogenic diet for like seizures, right? So people do it mm-hmm. for that. People do it for, um, some people find that it gives them a clear state of mind. Like, you mm-hmm. know, so, so there's a lot of different reasons why people do it. Some people do it just because they think it's better. Like, you know, there's kind of like the blind followers that just hear, um, you know, oh, the actress I like does it. I'm going to do it. Like, there's a lot mm-hmm. of that too, right? Which isn't the greatest, but, but um, it's a lot of times and kind of what we talked about earlier, a lot of times it, there's always the underlying thing of, is this the way I can lose the weight the best? Right. right. Okay. That's, you know, with, with, with any diet, because of our culture, that usually is kind of the, like, if you peel back the layers of the onion, that's really what's at the core of a lot of those diets. Right. Mm-hmm. So then it goes back to, you know, like if we're counseling someone who's trying to stop seizures and all the medications aren't working and there's been some evidence it may work doing i'm just doing because i want to lose weight and you're just kind of following like the bandwagon that was put out there um so that that's kind of the difference between like paleo keto is usually what we've been noticing is when we look at diet trends people just package the same type of diet with different terminology right mm-hmm. or, or there's little shifts on what types of food you're allowed and not allowed in those diets so when we're thinking about athletes a lot of times those type of diets are rooted in the using fat as your fuel source to metabolize better. And also if there's a spin on the weight loss, it's usually like that carbs are bad. Therefore I need lower carbs. Mm-hmm. Right. We, hear, we hear that all the time, right? That um, it's sort of a good time. Cause one of my um, listeners, Dana asked about whether there was, you know, diets like this ketogenic diet for like a younger athlete and um, sort of 17, 18 year old, um, I know our daughter's a high level volleyball player, you know, is there special considerations for younger people who might be thinking about experimenting, say sports with these, with diets like that, um, in terms of, uh, performance, you know, cause I, I'm pretty sure she wasn't asking about weight loss in this particular instance. Yeah. Yeah. So the, 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 the two big things we always try to tell youth athletes, it's number one, it's the, the gro- they're still in a growth phase, like just as, like as young people. So you have to be wary of anything where you're restricting your diet during your growth part of your life, right? So all the way from children, even into those young adults, right? Now, you know, females do kind of stop that growth period at a different time than men, but even, you know, in, even in their 20s, you got to watch for that. Um, then there's also the hormone changes as the child is growing. Mm -hmm. So, so that's why sometimes we tell people, you know, even if you see something that like we talk about supplements, we'll say that, you know, even though you see that pro athlete, you know, using that supplement, it's never actually been tested on somebody who has different hormone levels based on, you know, their puberty or growth. So we have to be very cautious of that. Right. Um, so it's the same with more of the, the energy amounts or the types of foods we're eating. We do want to be mindful of that just for health reasons generally. Um, and it's also, you know, if someone's choosing to, to try those diets, it's really being true to yourself and saying, you know, is this harming or, or helping me? Um, mm-hmm. 
if you, if it, some people do find these diets help them and, and sometimes it's not explained by anything. If you're noticing you're, you're performing better, you're feeling better, you know, on a health level, you're, you know, you're not, there's no harm there, you know, that's, that's okay. But if you start noticing, well, I'm having issues with this, or I don't feel good, or I don't feel like I have the energy, it's probably not worth doing. Right. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, so so it's, it's just good to be caught. It's really, we really want the younger, especially kind of that younger population to be wary of that and realize that their bodies are different than a grown man or woman who mm -hmm. has kind of finished that stage of their life. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. guess it's probably the case that, you know, with these things being felt, although the, you know, we had Atkins, I think back in the nineties, wasn't he? But yeah. I'd imagine there aren't a ton of long-term studies on, on, like observational studies looking at people who do this keto diet for a very long time and and probably even fewer that look at adolescents specifically yeah and then track them for a long time i don't know does any study like that exist you know yeah there's not many and and like it's hard too because there's the ethical side of doing those studies on minors but <laughs> the, um the problem with that's the problem with the diet kind of more of that diet culture is usually no diet is that prominent enough that people will follow it that long yes. time. because yeah. the, the one the one thing we notice with keto with the keto diet is if you follow the keto diet to a t it's very low carb a lot of people say they eat keto but when you actually like assess how many grams of carbs they're eating they're not actually at the level that they would need to get ketogenic right mm -hmm. um, but what it is is it's very it's it's just a hard diet to follow for practical reasons for you know you follow it Monday to Friday, but then you go out with your friends to a restaurant and the only options are those higher carb foods. People aren't actually staying in the ketogenic state. So, mm -hmm. so a lot of people just can't follow it just based on practicality of how hard it is to do. Right. I mean, people can yep. only eat so much bacon, fat and avocados. You know, you're not going to mm. do that for decades. Right. right. The, the yeah. most strict people do. And they, the most, some people have that mindset to do that, but most people don't, they, they'll just jump to, that didn't work for me. I failed. I'm going to jump to something else. That's usually what happens, right? And as well, you're going to get that sort of, I don't know what you would call it in research, but kind of a selection bias where this sort of right. effective attrition, where if you're looking at long-term follow-ups of people who've followed a ketogenic diet for a long time, the only people who are going to do that are people who are having success with it. So you're going to measure them and say, look how successful it is. But right. you don't check all the people who stopped doing that diet because it wasn't working for them. Exactly. And usually the most motivated people to tell you that it's the best diet for them are that select few, right? Mm -hmm. Like there, there are, there are very, um, there, there are a few, like, you know, when you go into like the running and triathlon ultra endurance, there are people who swear by those low fat diets, ketogenic mm -hmm. diets, but maybe they're that select population that whether it's genetically like mentally, physically, maybe they are adapted better to use that diet and it works for them because they, they might naturally be more inclined to like eating those foods. They mm -hmm. might naturally just feel better based on the genetic factor. You know, that's where there's so much unknown, but that's like, you know, if you, if you talk to a thousand runners, there's probably a very small amount that do do that and do really well with it. Mm -hmm. But like you said, it's that selection bias of, well, yeah, they're the ones going to tell you it works for them, but it doesn't mean it works for all. Right. Yeah. And, and it's funny that as you were saying that sort of reminds me of actually myself because a lot of people ask me about diet because I'm vegan and have been for a long time and yeah. it almost feels 
it's it's very easy for me. It always has been. Yeah. And um I've had I don't I don't think I've had any trouble because of it. Yeah. But then, you know, I'm always a little hesitant, particularly when I'm at work, to to sort of endorse it because I'm like, yes, it's it's working fine for me, but I haven't read the research on, you know, um the effects of a vegan diet long term or its effect on performance for endurance athletes or something like it's am I one of those, you know, people who would look back and say, Oh yeah, it's it's wonderful. You know, and it's like, well, yeah, it is for me. <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't know. Is there is there must research on the other side of the spectrum where you Yeah. I'd imagine most vegans are fairly low fat. Is that is that correct or yeah, it's so with with a vegan diet, you know, so if we talk about vet, like with the vegetarian vegetarian style dieting, right? There's very there's a lot of different levels of it, right? Because some people identify they're vegetarian and they they eat all meat except red meat, right? But they say that, but they say they're vegetarian. Right? So there's there's different levels of it, and then veganism is all those animal products, right? And and even with there, there's that there's there's the line that someone draws of what's considered an animal product or not. Right. Mm. So even within the, the, even within that umbrella of vegetarian eating, there's a huge scope and a huge variety mm -hmm. of what people do. Right. So, but when you get into vegan, if we talk about veganism, generally, we're really thinking of like, obviously any type of animal flesh, any type of animal product, right. You know, mo like mostly dairy and eggs or what people in our culture, usually that's what people are thinking of. Um, then you get into, you know, people who don't eat things like honeys or different dyes and stuff. Um, but when you think about what are those foods I'm getting rid of in a vegan diet, it's, it's animal products, which are usually our main source of the proteins and fats that we eat. Right. So when you look at any diet, so if we think about the vegan diet, those are the foods you're getting rid of. So those are probably what's lower in your diet. Mm-hmm. Just generally, right? You can eat you can eat vegan a vegan diet and have the right amount of protein and fat you need. But just generally, if we look at what the average Canadian diet is, and we then would take out all the foods they eat to make someone a vegan, it's usually the protein and fat foods that they're taking out, dairy yeah. and meats, right? So there's nothing wrong with that, but that's where you have to explain to them. It's like, you know, vegan, a vegan lifestyle is a very healthy lifestyle, but we just need to make sure we're getting those nutrients that you're taking away when you start to reduce those different foods. Mm -hmm. right? Another uh, similar, cause I, I mean, I've done a little research, so you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, but the, the main things that I've heard for me, particularly as a vegan is, uh, omega three, uh, maybe iron and, B12, obviously. Yeah. So um, is that the main concerns for vegans or is it is that is that also a concern for vegetarians? And yeah, yeah. So with um, so with veg again, with the vegetarian, it depends on what they're not eating. Right. So you can still so a lot of vegetarians will still eat fish. Right. right. Yeah. These might not be the biggest issue for them if they're eating a, a good amount of fish. Um, Iron and zinc, you get like iron, zinc, B12. Those are kind of those micronutrients that usually we get the most in animal products. So with um, B12, that's the big one you see with vegetarian versus vegan is when they start losing all those animal products that B12 can really drop, mm -hmm. um, right? Um, 
Now, the reason B12 and iron are the ones you hear the most, and those are the big ones, it's just because those are the ones that usually people have problems with. Even just people who do eat meat have problems with low iron. So then mm-hmm. when someone goes to a vegetarian or vegan diet, it just drops even more so. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the iron sources that we eat in a vegetarian diet, our body doesn't absorb them as well as the meat source of iron. Um, they call it like heme or non-heme iron. Mm-hmm. Um so it's not that you can't do it. It's just that you have to be a little more mindful of the choices you make, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, we see, like, we see a lot of people who go into vegetarian or veganism for, you know, ethical reasons. Um, you know, they don't want to eat animals. So, but then, but then their solution is, well, I'm just going to eat salads, right? So you say, well, no, you need to still get those nutrients, but there, there are ways you can do it eating vegetarian or vegan, right? Mm-hmm. Using the, the pulses, the beans, um, different types of pro like soy products. Like there's ways to do it. You just have to be more mindful of how you adapt to that. Um, so we just, when people make a change like that, so we talked about the keto, we talked about the low, low carb. If someone comes to us, we're trying to get them to still do it the best way possible. If they're really, if that's what they really want to try that's what we're trying to do, right. Is make mm-hmm. sure that they're doing it properly. What that, that reminds me of something we touched on at the start where I was saying, you know, is, is weight or BMI a good proxy for health? So if you look at someone like me, it's like, I, I feel fine, but then I do worry, you know, what if iron, I have no idea what my iron levels are, right? It's, yeah. Or um, vitamin D, for example, like it, when someone comes to see you, do you, do you sort of look at their diet and lifestyle and infer health? Or do you do you do certain like blood tests or, or or do you use BMI? Like, how do you decide if someone is healthy? Um, yeah, so you're you're looking at it. You are looking at it holistically, right? Like you're saying, you know, how do they generally feel? You know, are they? You know, a lot of people are like sapped for energy all the time, right? That's what you see a lot of times, especially with athletes, because they're usually not eating enough food. So it's usually like that low energy availability that they just feel wiped. Um, but there are things that you, as a dietitian, you start to ask people about their diet. What do they eat? What's their usual food? Like those, you can start to pull things that they might be low in. And then you do, you know, you can use blood tests to confirm some of that, right? If, if someone's a vegetarian or vegan, it's a very good idea to get regular blood tests to check them. Mm. And then, then we can work on how do you increase that? Do we do it food? solely with food or do you use a supplement to to boost that or just to add into that right so you you have to you have to take kind of that intuition through it and then try to confirm some of those if you think that right if someone doesn't drink any dairy or have any dairy foods sometimes we need to think about the calcium vitamin d right Mm -hmm. Um, if someone doesn't need any vegetables probably low fiber, right? Some low in some of the B vitamins you have to, so you have to kind of, you kind of can generalize a bit, but you still have to confirm that too. So right. that's, that's an interesting, I never really thought about this before, but in, in the physio world, you know, you need that sort of, say someone has knee pain, you do a clinical exam and mm-hmm. then you decide, am I going to order an MRI or not? Because if they go straight for the MRI, they often find things that are irrelevant and sort of make them feel, um, sort of pathologizes them, you know, so it's not a good idea to sort of blanket MRI or blanket x-ray people with pain, it tends to cause more problems than it helps with. Is that the case with blood tests as well? Do they give false positives, false negatives? Do they, do they misguide, mislead people? And do you really need someone like you to sort of put a whole 
clinical picture together and use blood tests as part of that to have any useful information. Yeah, yeah. So we, like, we, like when we talk about, you know, you're doing your, um, like when we do your assessments, right? You're doing like the anthrometric stuff. You're looking at them as a person, right? You're doing the biochemical, like that's the, the blood labs. So you do want to make sure there's, a, when you're getting some of those blood labs, you kind of, you have to have a purpose behind it, right? Mm. It's the same with supplementation. You you don't want to just blanket supplement. Right, you, okay. you, want, you want to supplement based on the need that you might have, right? Just it's it's more just trying to be focused and intentful to what you do, right? Just like you said, you don't order everything known to man just because. Like you're not necessarily doing exploratory look look into something. Um, sometimes you have to, but it's if you have a, a hunch or a, an idea of what it could be, you want to kind of look into that with like a, f a focus, right? Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I never thought about that before. So, so sort of for me going to my doctor and saying, could I get some blood tests and like just looking at the numbers and comparing them to what it should be online for my age, like that actually would be pretty, pretty stupid. Really. <laughs> well, it's like, like, is it a waste of your time? Is it a waste of the resources? Is it, you know, um, like you're, you're, if your doctor, like when your doctor orders the blood test, they don't check every box on that list, right? Mm -hmm. They look at it based on what you may be experiencing or having difficulty with, or do you have a history of something? You know, if your family has a history of heart disease, they're going to look at some of those markers, right? And then, so would it be better, like someone like yourself, you're like, you know what, you're going to come and see me once every year, once every three years, like, do you know what I mean? And so for someone like me, who appears healthy, but has some of these concerns, is that is that a good idea to do, come and work with a dietitian sort of um, spread out over time to, to look into these things if needed? Yeah. So, so a lot of times people will come in it again, it goes back to the reason they come in, but a lot of the times you kind of start with the, a little more of the frequent visits to then stretch out into more of like a maintenance, you know what I mean? Like checking in annual stuff, semi-annual. Mm -hmm. um, now, if it's behavioral based, Sometimes they need more, sometimes they need less. It depends on the right. person. But yeah, so sometimes that helps. And if someone's worried about some of their blood labs, if they sometimes they'll do it, they'll come in and do those those meetings after they do their annual blood work with their doctor. Whenever, you right. know, not all of us just get blood work all the time. So sometimes they they kind of pair it with that. Once you know a bit, then you can at least go in and say, you know, my doctor said I had low iron. How can I mm -hmm. deal with that? And then we'll work with them on the practical side of it. What foods do you like? What will these foods have high iron? Are those ones you could add into your day? Um, do we need to talk about supplementation to add into that? Like that's and kind do, of the stuff that we can help work with. Do dietitians, you know, form a first point of contact and then go and order tests like blood work? Or do you need to sort of refer back to the doctor to order those tests? How does that work? It depends right now. Now with a lot of times the doctor is the one who has to send the referral in. Right. Um, but now it, sometimes that depends on the health jurisdiction, right? Right. Okay. Um, right. If, if, if people have access to private blood tests, I don't think they care as long as you pay them. <laughs> like, it's, you know <laughs> what I mean though, right. It's, it's you, but usually you're getting your, a lot of times in our system, it, it, it's usually beneficial if the doctor does the order. Um, now that's where we'd love to have like partnership with different health professionals, right? Yeah. yeah. Have that because, because there are things that we can't do as dietitians that another health professional can do. Right. So we just want to, to, to pair, you know, the pair and partner with them. Yeah. yeah. 
I'm afraid I'm going to have to stop. I have to take my wife to work, but I feel like I could ask you another <laughs> thousand questions, but I'm really grateful <laughs> for um, you spending so much time on this. Like I said, uh, as we're chatting, the, there's literally about 50 more questions that came oh, yeah. into my mind. Oh, yeah, you go forever, right? So, <laughs> but um, I think what we touched on was very, I was certainly very enlightening for me. Um, and I think uh, the guys who watch all get some useful information out of it. But uh, I'm going to try and get you to to come back in the future if you don't mind, because oh, that was sure. really helpful. Anytime, yeah, if there's any topics or if anyone has any questions too, like we like go on the website, you know, we have that, we have the website, which has our email, right? We have, um, also some of the YouTube stuff and um, like the, I think the Instagram stuff, mostly Autumn does, but like, you know, anywhere that people can pose questions or ask questions by all means, it's not no big deal. That's it's always good for the challenge, especially if yeah. you don't know it. It's almost bad. It's more, it's more fun if you don't know it. Cause then you have to look into it. Right. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll put links in the description to your website. So it's RD nutrition, which is for uh, red deer nutrition. Yeah. Is that correct? Well, red deer and it kind of works out well because in red deer RD, but also that's our, that's our abbreviated um, designation, right? RD registered dietitian. I see. Okay. So it's yeah. So it's kind of like the double meaning, which is, which is nice. And I don't know if you know your social media handles off the top of your head, but I'll certainly put those in the notes. But if, um, if anyone wants to look you up, do you, do you happen to know them off the top of your head? Well, it's RD nutrition Inc. Oh yes. It is. Right, yeah. I'm trying to remember what the actual handle is for Instagram and, and YouTube. But it's, yeah, so if you just Google RD Nutrition Inc., it's also on our website, right? RD Nutrition. Yes. Yeah. And I'll put it in the show yeah. notes yeah. as well in the description. So it's all so. on there. But yeah, it's mostly the YouTube that we're starting to populate with those videos. Um, those are usually linked through the Instagram account. Um, we do have a Facebook account and we have those sub, we have those sub um, communities. Um, so I've been focusing on those videos more lately, but sometimes we'll post and have discussion in those. So we have a sports nutrition one. We also have like, mm -hmm. I think family nutrition and gut health or something. So mm -hmm. we have, the, we have the main page and then the subgroups. Oh, we didn't even get into the gut. That's, that's an interesting um, area. <laughs> that, uh, I know that, that was a, that was a tough one, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, uh, thank you very much for taking the time. Yeah, I will, I will it. be in touch. Um, yeah, I really appreciate you coming on. Yeah. yeah you no too, problem. Matt. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening, guys. If you'd like your questions featured on the show, just email me, mboyphysio at gmail.com. And if you have a moment to leave a review on whatever podcast I'd be listening to this on, it would be a huge help. See you next week.